Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. A few weeks ago, uh, I wasn't here actually, I was invited to head up north to a camp uh, outside of Owen Sound called Word of Life, and they invited me to be their guest speaker uh, for one of their youth camps, a snow camp. And my family actually has big history there. My sisters used to go to this exact same snow camp. Well, I don't, won't age them. Over 30, since before I was born, put it that way. <laughs> a long time ago. Um, so it was a blessing to be up there. And they gave me the task. They said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a bunch of kids from the age of uh, grade 6 through 12. And we're going to give you the topic of the year. And the topic is control all in God's hands. Basically, Andrew, we want you to explain God's sovereignty to a bunch of middle schoolers and high schoolers. Oh, by the way, many of them have never touched a Bible before in their life. Easy task, right? Well, as I was reflecting this past couple weeks, knowing that I'd be speaking here uh, as well, I was thinking about that idea of God's sovereignty and the fact that, (coughs) pardon me, it's one of those words that we use a lot in the church And yet, even for those of us who understand it, or think we understand it, it can still be really hard for us to accept it, to appreciate it, and to really apply it in the day-to-day, an understanding of what it means for God to be in control or for God to be sovereign. And so my hope this morning and for next week as well is as we dive into the topic of God's sovereignty, that we can gain a greater understanding, but also a greater appreciation of God's sovereignty, because really this topic hits on so many of the major reasons that people have, or struggles, I might say, for following Jesus or even believing in Jesus, whether in the church or outside the church. Questions like, what does it mean when people say God is in control? How could a good God allow suffering? We've all heard that before. Why is God allowing me to go through these circumstances I'm going through? All of these questions connect back to a proper understanding of God's sovereignty. And I will say over the next two weeks, we are not going to answer all of these big questions. People have been struggling with these questions for years, and people will continue to struggle with these questions for years. But my hope is by looking at a few examples in God's word of people, real people who lived and existed, who had events happen to them beyond their control, and seeing how they responded and how God interacted with them, hopefully, after the next two weeks, we will at least have a greater understanding of God's sovereignty and a greater picture and appreciation of it um, and how God is sovereign in the midst of everything that we go through. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of John. In fact, it is John chapter 9 that we are looking at this morning. (coughs) John chapter 9, I'll be fully, uh, full disclosure here, John 9 contains one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. And we are not going to read the entire chapter this morning as much as I'd love to, because that would take up most of our time, but we are going to try and get through most of the story. As you're turning there, again, we, you've heard it here before, but if we're going to dive into a text especially in the middle of the book, we need to establish context. You wouldn't pick up a novel and start reading in chapter 5, and the same thing, we don't want to do the same with God's word. And so at this point in the book of John, 
we have Jesus. We have Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus is going around doing ministry. He is preaching. He's teaching. He's doing miraculous signs and wonders, some in Galilee, some back in Jerusalem. Back and forth he goes. In fact, if you have been participating in our Sunday morning adult Sunday school class, Nate just led us through a series on the signs and wonders in the book of John. It's a shameless plug for our Sunday school series. You should check it out uh, Sunday mornings at 9.30. So hopefully this is not too much a recap for those of you who are in there. But Jesus has been doing the miraculous, signs and wonders. He's been healing people. He's been uh, casting out demons. He's been uh, feeding multitudes and multitudes of people. And as we can imagine, the miraculous happening drew many followers to him, but as many of us know, it also drew opposition. And as I'm sure you'll remember from our series in the book of Matthew, at this time in history, Jewish society, while it was under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire, was still largely led by religious leaders, by priests, by elders, scribes, and rabbis. And in particular, I'm sure many of you remember and have heard of the group known as the Pharisees, who at this point in the book of John were not big fans of Jesus. In fact, after he started doing things like healing on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest, and after he started calling himself God's son, thus equating himself with God himself, the tone sort of shifts, and the Pharisees stopped just being annoyed with him and started moving towards actively trying to find a way to kill him without rousing the hate and the, uh, the riots, really, of the crowds that were following him. And it's into this reality that we are jumping into in John chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse 1 through 7. <clears throat> As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spit on the ground, made mud from the saliva, and applied the mud to the man's eyes. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So the man left and washed, and he came back seeing. We'll pause there for a moment. I mean, really, we could stop there and have a fascinating story. And I don't know about you, but this story raises so many questions right off the bat. Why is the first response of the disciples that the man was blind because of sin? That has to be a question we ask, right? What does Jesus mean when he says it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him? What does Jesus mean when he says night is coming when no one can work? Bigger questions I'm sure many of us have, maybe not bigger, different questions. Why does Jesus make mud? Why does Jesus make mud out of his own saliva and rub it on the guy's face when we know just chapters before he had healed people with a word or a thought or a touch? Why specifically did he use mud? Why did he require that this man go somewhere specific to wash off the mud? There's a lot of questions, and again, we're not going to answer every single one of them this morning. But let's start with that first one. Why did the disciples think that this man was blind because of sin? Verse 2, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? 
we know that sin is that which separates us from God. It's anything that's disobedient or opposed to what God has said is good, that which God has commanded. And at this time, it was a common perception that if someone had a physical ailment, such as blindness, it was probably because they were a dirty, rotten sinner. If, however, their ailment was since birth, like this man, it was often the case that their parents were dirty, rotten sinners. And this was a common perception at the time. And so the disciples, knowing that Jesus knows what's up, they ask him, so who is it, Jesus? Is this guy a screw-up, or is it his parents? Who are the bad people here? What's, what's the scenario? What happened? And I know I've talked about this before in a previous sermon, but before we move on too far, I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't correct their assumption. While he does say that the man's blindness is not due to his own sin or the parent's sin, he doesn't correct the idea that sometimes people face physical consequences for their sin. He doesn't say, that's a stupid question, or you're misunderstanding. He just says, in this case, it was not. In fact, there are numerous points, even in the New Testament, I thought Seth was going to steal my thunder for a moment there, we think of 1 Corinthians 11 being one of them, even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when people, even Christians, face real physical consequences for their sin. And again, to clarify here, I am definitely not saying as I've said before, if you're here today and you are suffering or have suffered, I'm not saying that it is because you've brought it on yourself or that you're a dirty, rotten sinner or anything like that. But I do think it is something interesting to consider as we think about this idea of God's sovereignty. So often when we go through difficult times in our life, we ask those big questions focused on God. Where are you, God? How can you be good and allow this, God? Why is this happening, God? God, do you even care about me? On the flip side, how often do we even at least consider, think about for a moment, the possibility that our sin can bring earthly consequences and that maybe God isn't necessarily the one to blame for our problems? It's just something I think that we need to think about as we consider the idea of understanding God's sovereignty. Alas, in this man's case, his ailment was not a direct result of sin, but it was, as Jesus says in verse 3, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It wasn't a punishment, it wasn't discipline, it was just an effect of the brokenness and suffering that mars all of creation in a sin-stained world where a suffering was allowed, not caused by, but allowed by a sovereign God for a specific purpose, so that the works of him or of God might be displayed in him. Now, some have still tried to look at this story and tried to find a way to villainize God in the midst of this. They say, if God is willing to even allow suffering, it's the same as if he caused it himself. How can he be good if he, I don't care if he caused it or allowed it, he can't be good if he allows this kind of suffering. But I think that really shows a misunderstanding of sin and its effects and consequences in our world. While this man may not have caused his own suffering with a specific terrible sin, he was still far from perfect. How do I know that? Well, because we are all far from perfect. In comparison with the perfection of God, None of us stands a chance. And if we were to make a list of all the sin that each and every one of us has committed, even the quote-unquote good ones in the room, I, we'd see very quickly that 
every one of us deserves to be punished and disciplined for our actions. In fact, Romans 6.23 makes it very clear that what all of us truly deserve as sinners is death. So the fact that any of us go through seasons where we aren't suffering and aren't being disciplined and aren't being punished is truly a gracious provision from a perfect God who in all actuality ought to be disgusted by us and our actions. And we see some of that gracious provision in this story. We see Jesus step into this man's life and offer him something that no one else has ever been able to offer him, his sight. A work of God displayed miraculously in his life. It's an interaction with Jesus and a miracle he never would have even witnessed or experienced if he hadn't been allowed to suffer in the first place. His eyes couldn't have been opened if they weren't closed to start with. And this leads me to something I'm going to repeat a few times over the next two weeks as we seek to understand and appreciate God's sovereignty. And it's a simple statement. It's a little, trying to keep something in our mind. It's that sometimes God allows things we don't understand to accomplish something greater than we can imagine. Sometimes God allows things we don't understand to accomplish something greater than we can imagine. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, as you can imagine, a man who was blind his whole life suddenly receiving sight caused quite the commotion. There were people who recognized him as the blind beggar on the street corner, and they were very confused to see him walking about. I'm sure there were people thinking, hey, I gave that guy money the other day because he was blind. What's up? Now he's walking around. Well, let's continue the story in verse 8 of John chapter 9. So the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. The man himself kept saying, I am the one. And so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and I washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. I want us to notice here in particular the way the man refers to Jesus. He says, the man who is called Jesus made mud and rubbed it on my eyes. We remember at this point, as far as what the text tells us, he hasn't even seen Jesus yet. Jesus made the mud, put it on his eyes, said, go wash, and he received sight, and we have no interaction after that. He heard a man's voice, heard some instructions, followed them, and now he has sight. But he does not actually know Jesus himself yet. Well, all of this confusion inevitably reached the ears of the Pharisees, who were concerned not so much about the healing itself, but how and when it was done. Let's continue in verse 13. It's a longer stretch here, but it's really important for the narrative. <coughs> they brought the man who was previously blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied mud to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man, that is Jesus, is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was dissension among them. So they said again to the man who was blind, what do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it about him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. 
And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How now does he see? His parents then answered and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man, again, that is Jesus, is a sinner. He then answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees already had Jesus in their crosshairs at this point, and this just increased their fervor. Because once again, they had clear testimony that he had healed someone on the Sabbath, which they deemed to be disobedient to God's law. And so, on one hand, they're frustrated that this Jesus guy they keep hearing about isn't following their interpretation of the law, and yet they're also really confused, because if he's empowered by God, why on earth would he break the Sabbath? And if he's not empowered by God, how on earth could he do such a miracle? What makes this even more complex is later on in the story, it tells us that while there were stories and tales of people being healed from blindness, never before was it someone who had been blind from birth. And so they are confused. There is dissension among them. The only option that makes sense to them is that the man must have been lying. He was never blind in the first place. It was all a big ruse. So they find his parents to question them, to see if the story holds up. No doubt looking for someone to slip. You can almost picture the interrogation light, the metal chair and table. Is this your son? What's the deal? Explain it to us. And yet, as we see in the story, his parents are very concise and very particular with their responses. They don't give anything. Why? Well, they were terrified. John gives us this insight in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. I love when John does this, where he gives us the behind-the-scenes commentary and explains exactly what's happening. And it's in this verse that we get a glimpse into the immense socio-political power that the Pharisees had. Because to excommunicate someone from the synagogue is a little bit different than how we might think of, oh, maybe don't come to our church anymore. It's, it's a lot more than that. In fact, history tells us that excommunication from the synagogue would have meant total isolation and ostracization from their culture. I kind of think of it like those situations when a person who's committed a certain type of heinous crime gets released from prison. And when they do, the posters go up around their neighborhood saying, just be aware this person has done these things in the past. Keep your eyes open. An offender is in your midst. Be cautious. It would have had serious implications for their family, their reputation, their religion, their ability to worship, perhaps even their work, their livelihood, their acceptance in society as a whole. And so it's no wonder that they were afraid. And so they say what they have to do, basically throwing their son under the bus just so that they can get out of there and not be ostracized from their community. So, getting nowhere with the parents, the Pharisees get the healed man back in and almost try and bully him into a confession. Look at verse 24 again. <coughs> For a second time they summoned the man who had been blind 
and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, which in my basic common cultural translation is basically like, if you claim to care at all about God, admit that Jesus is in the wrong here. Admit that he's evil. And if you don't, we're going to have reason to start questioning your loyalty. Start questioning how much you actually care about God, which could have dire circumstances and consequences. And yet, the man responds with, again, what I'll say is probably one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, verse 25. Then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I'd be sitting and asking, Andrew, why is this verse so special? It's just the lyrics of Amazing Grace. What's so special about this? What I love about this verse is that faced with confusion and questions, even opposition and borderline threats, this man responds with the truth, he responds with humility, and he responds with a simple explanation of his experience with Jesus. While it's good for us to learn and to know and to understand, this shows me we don't have to have all the answers all the time to still speak the truth in love. I'm sure that this man could not articulate all the hows and whys of his healing. He didn't even really know who Jesus was. He said at one point, the man who is called Jesus. And later on, he said, a prophet? Question mark? A prophet? We don't read at this point about him having a particularly strong faith or even a belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the promised Savior and King of the Jewish people. In fact, at this point, we as the reader almost have more information than he did, right? We have this commentary from Jesus saying, it was allowed so the works of God might be displayed in him. This man didn't even know that at this point. All he knew is he was blind, and then he saw. He didn't have all the answers, yet he faithfully shared his story and his experience with Jesus. Sometimes God allows things we don't understand to accomplish something greater than we can imagine. If you're here today and you've had an experience or an encounter with Jesus, if he's changed or impacted your life in any way, even if it seems small to you, I'd really encourage you to be inspired by this verse, to share your experience with others around you, as Mike invited people to do this morning. Maybe it's with a family member or a friend. Maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor. Maybe it's even to encourage other people in this room who might be struggling in their faith. As we see in this story, people might not believe you or they might not care, but the reality is, is no one can take away your experience, and it might just have a bigger impact than you realize. On the flip side, if you're here today and you haven't had an experience with Jesus, we're glad you're here. Maybe you're new to the Bible, maybe you're new to this Christian language, you're not even really sure who Jesus was, or maybe you've been here for years and you're just still not convinced. You're still struggling to believe. I'd encourage you to do exactly what Mike suggested this morning. Ask someone. Ask someone about their experience with Jesus. Ask why they believe what they believe. Maybe even multiple people. You can talk to myself, to Josiah, to the other elders, the deacons, people who are up on the platform. Sorry, volunteering you this morning. Other people in this room, the majority of them, I'm sure you can find someone who is willing to share their story with you of what they've experienced with Jesus and why they believe what they believe. I will challenge, though, if you want it to be beneficial, don't come at it like the Pharisees here, trying to disprove, trying to dismiss, but approach it humbly as one seeking to listen and to learn. 
We're not going to read the next chunk of verses, but suffice it to say, the Pharisees don't like the man's response, especially when he actually starts trying to point out logical inconsistencies in their line of questioning. And eventually, they get mad enough that they do exactly what his parents feared, and they throw him out of the synagogue. And at this point, (coughs) he has every reason, from a human perspective at least, to be frustrated, to be angry, to be upset, to be afraid. Yes, he has his sight, and that's miraculous, but now he still has a very uncertain future in front of him. I don't know about you, but even when good things happen in my life, it can be really easy to focus on the negatives or the downsides or the difficulties. But instead, we see a very, very different response. Let's jump all the way down to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, that is, out of the synagogue. And upon finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you now. And he said, I believe, Lord. And he worshiped him. He asks, he believes, and then he worships. Now, you'll notice that Jesus uses this interesting term, son of man, which, again, we may remember from our study in the book of Matthew. It was a term originally used in the book of Daniel, referring to the coming Messiah. And so Jesus is essentially asking if the man believes in the man from God, the one from God, the Messiah, the coming king. Do you believe this is happening? The man responds, asking for clarity, but notice he asks with purpose. It's not just who is he, it's who is he so that I may believe in him. Now, believe here isn't just acknowledging existence. It's not, I believe in trees because I've seen trees and I know that trees exist. I can go and touch a tree if I wanted to. It's also not about educated assumptions, like I think it's going to snow later because the weatherman says so, or even wishful thinking, like I think the Leafs are finally going to win a cup this year. Not that kind of belief. I'm going to get shamed for that one. Angry emails. In this case, belief is almost more associated with trust. It's like, I believe you that what you're saying is true and that you are who you say you are. It's almost like the difference between do you believe that this person is strong versus practically, do you believe that this person could and would carry you out of a burning building if you broke your ankle and couldn't run yourself? It's trust. It's belief. It's really no less here than Jesus presenting his identity as the Savior Messiah to the man and the man saying, yes, I trust that that's you and that you have the power to say, uh, to do what you say you'll do. And honestly, that's why I love that the example in this story, that the, the sign, the wonder that Jesus is doing here is a person who is born blind because it's a helpful illustration for the helplessness that we face in this life. Now, again, not saying that those who are blind are helpless. Of course not. But rather, in most cases, as far as I'm aware, a person born blind is helpless to solve their own affliction. Right? Helpless to solve their own affliction. There isn't anything they can do in and of themselves to make themselves see, to open their eyes, to just suddenly make them start working again. They can't just work harder, dream bigger, or will themselves to sight. We think about this man in John 9. He needed to rely on someone else to truly see. 
physically and ultimately spiritually. He ultimately had to place at least a little bit of trust in Jesus when he went and did exactly what Jesus said, washing his eyes off at a pool across town. And that eventually led to him at this point actually declaring belief in Jesus as the Messiah. A few weeks ago at our Treehouse Kids program and then again at the camp weekend, I illustrated it like this. I used an analogy with a ball, a cup, and a blindfold. And I got a volunteer from those listening, and I blindfolded them. So, uh, no, I'm not going to pick from you guys this morning. I'll just explain what we did. I blindfolded them, and I gave them three ping pong balls and three rounds with different stipulations, but each with the goal of getting the ball in the cup. So the first round was simple. I put the cup on one side of the platform. I blindfolded them on the other side, spun them around, gave them a ball, and said, give it your best shot. See if you can get it in. And of course, as expected, the ball went in completely the wrong direction, hitting someone actually in the audience, which was funny. Nowhere close. The second round, I blindfolded them before moving the cup to a different location, spun them around, and then I allowed them to ask the audience, so to speak. They could ask three questions, and we would all collectively, as the group there, respond with truth. They could ask questions to get an idea of where to throw. They could ask if they needed to rotate in which direction, how far away it was, how high up it was. And as expected, again, they threw the ball and they got a little bit closer, but they still didn't get it in the cup. Finally, for round three, I put on the blindfold one more time and I spun them around and I told them before they throw, they had a choice. They could take the risk and throw again with no direction. Or if they wanted to, they could pick one person in the room that they trust. They could ask that person to take the ball for them. That person could take the ball out of their hand, walk it over, and place it in the cup, and it would count as if they had thrown it in themselves. Up north, the kid took his chances, and he had the worst throw yet. At Treehouse, the volunteer picked Miss Jackie as his trusted helper, and I'm only a little offended that he didn't pick me directly. But he got the ball in the cup, not by himself, but by the work of someone else. I can tell that most of you have figured out where I'm going with this analogy already, but let me explain it clearly just to be safe. As I said before, we are all sinners, and ultimately, sin deserves punishment. But God has promised and provided a means to be forgiven and to gain eternal life with him, to open our eyes and to heal the spiritual blindness that ultimately we all have. Like in the first round, some of us just want to take a shot. We think if there's a, hell, a heaven, I have a pretty good chance of getting there, as long as I'm a pretty good person. My good outweighs my bad, so I should be okay. But then when we take that shot, we quickly realize just how far off we are. Maybe there's a sin that we like a little too much. Maybe there's one that's just really hard to stop. Maybe there's activities or things in our life that we enjoy too much, things that we know God doesn't approve of, but we just want to keep engaging. And so we know we can't actually do it. We can't earn our salvation any more than we can get a ball in a cup with a blindfold on. Some of us, like the second round, like to turn to others or maybe other means to try and get there. I'll go to church sometimes, at least once a month, so they know I exist. Maybe I'll go to a Bible study. I've heard those are cool. Maybe I listen to Christian music in the car. I'll pick up my Bible sometimes. Actually, you know what? My parents and my spouse even believe in God, so I should be good to go. These are all really good things, and they can hopefully point us in the right direction. But again, ultimately, left to our own strength, 
we are just not going to get it in. So instead, God sent Jesus, one whom we can trust, who can take it all out of our hands. He came and lived a perfect life and ultimately died the death that we all deserve on the cross, and he rose to life again, victorious over sin and death, so that by believing in him, we can be forgiven and have eternal life. He did the one thing that we could never do on our own, and all we need to do is believe in him. Like the man in John 9, folks, we cannot cure our own spiritual blindness. We might try and fail, or maybe perhaps some of us don't even care to try. Or maybe we might ask those big questions like, why God? <coughs> Where are you, God? How could you, God? And this side of eternity, honestly, we might not always get the answers. Or we might not get the answers that we want or expect. We might not have the privilege of hearing Jesus actually explain the reason for the suffering that we've endured. We might not know whether it was so the works of God could be demonstrated in our life, or whether it's to draw us into an encounter with Jesus, or whether it's a disciplinary consequence for our sins, or something else entirely. We might not know those answers, because it's not our job to know those answers. This man had no idea that his suffering would ultimately lead to his salvation. Sometimes God allows things we don't understand to accomplish something greater than we can imagine. I've heard it said before that suffering can cause us to wander or it can cause us to wonder. And it's not wrong to wonder at the reasons for our suffering. But as we see with this story, the solution is the same. Draw near to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And ultimately, like the man did, believe in Jesus. The one who has come to save us from so much more than just the physical ailments in this life. We're going to pray and close uh, in just a moment, but this morning I want to just emphasize, if you are here today and you've never believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul, I want to take a moment and invite you to take that step of faith today. During this time of prayer, just pray to God, talk to him. Confess to him that you know that you're a sinner and incapable of saving yourself, but that you believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that his work on the cross accomplished everything required to be forgiven and saved. For the rest of us who are here this morning who have already believed in Jesus, take this time as we pray to thank God for the gift of Jesus. Take this time to pray for your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, that they too would respond to the truth of Christ. Ask him to open your eyes to see the ways that he is working in your life and the lives of those around you. Ask for the strength to trust in him and his sovereign will even when you don't understand. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.